Good morning, Overlay. Go ahead and stand on up. My name is Sachin. I lead worship with the students here. Uh, we're going to start by singing some songs about Jesus. Sing this out. I want to scream it out.
you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for your promises. God, we thank you that you have invited us into this beautiful life with you, God. Thank you, Jesus. This next song might be new to you, but it's one we've been doing for a while now in student ministries, and um, it's called Open Space, and uh, we love it because message is just so simple that um, it's really just a prayer that God my heart is an open space for you that you can come and you can do whatever you want to do and um, that kind of uh, faith requires a lot of trust um, but what a gift it is because when we say God I'm open to you Jesus I'm open to you he comes in and he makes us like him changes our hearts so we want the things that he wants and he changes our minds so we think like he thinks and all because it just starts with making our hearts open to him saying whatever you want to do say whatever you want to say so I encourage you to sing along with us this morning and follow the words on the screen and just make this a prayer to make your heart open to him this morning No way. 
What an amazing opportunity we have today to worship together as an Overlake family. Thank you so much for being here. My name is James. And my name is Victoria. And we are members of the Student Ministries team. And we just want to say welcome to you, especially if you're a first-time guest. We're so happy that you're able to join us today. And we, we love to take an opportunity in this time to meet with one another, but hold your horses. Um, we want to first point to something that's in this handout that you received. Yes, and what James is referring to is that connection card that's in your handout. Connection cards are just one way here at Overlake that we want to connect and care for you and your family. And so at some point during service today, it would be a huge favor to us if you grabbed that out of your handout, you filled it out to the best of your ability. There's even a spot for a prayer request if that applies to you today. And then later on in service during our time of offering, those buckets will go through your row and you can just go ahead and drop that connection card in there later. Unless... Unless you are a first-time guest and then you're going to want to keep hold of your connection card and fill out anything that you're comfortable with and head down to our connection center, which is in the lobby just as you exit this worship center on the bottom floor. And we just want to give you a gift because we can't let you leave here empty-handed. And so it's going to be an opportunity for you to get a gift and meet some amazing people just like yourselves. Yes, and friends, today actually is one of my favorite things that we get to do during the holiday season, where every once in a while, from student to adult, we all get a pile in here to the worship center and praise Jesus together. Um, and as we mentioned, today is one of those Sundays, which is why you might see a few younger faces than normal, normal sitting amongst you. Um, and so actually, we have a unique opportunity today that you might actually get to meet someone that you wouldn't normally be able to get to interact with much on a normal Sunday morning. So we would love to capture off of this opportunity. So go ahead and stay standing. And in a few minutes, we're actually going to have a time for connection where you can meet some new people. And our special challenge today, if you're up for it, is we would love for you to shake hands with someone from a different generation than you and ask this holiday question because the season is upon us. What is your favorite holiday decoration? Maybe it's in your own home. Maybe this decoration was in your childhood home or something cool you've seen at a store. But go ahead, shake a few hands, meet some new people and ask that holiday question. and take a seat. I love seeing so much greeting, so much talking to each other. So great. My name is Neely. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Overlake, and I'm so glad that you're here. Today we're going to wrap up a series we've been in called In Our House, where we've been talking about what makes this house, this family here at Overlake unique. And the first week, Pastor Pat talked about the idea of freedom. And last week, Pastor Mike talked about family. And today, we're talking about fun. You, <laughs> yeah. Um, disclaimer, I am very serious about this topic. <laughs> this is not going to be funny. Just kidding. I mean, actually, seriously, I do have a real disclaimer. My real disclaimer is this. As I began to prepare this message and dig into scripture, it didn't take long for me to realize that this message on fun was going to be something different than when I first started to imagine it. So what I want to do is I want to start from a place 
of what we are not talking about when we talk about fun, what we aren't talking about. And that is fake forced fun. You know, plastic smiles we put on and the world is falling apart, but we're just cheery and happy. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, I think that's actually a misconception about Christians, right? That we just smile and ignore all the problems in the world. And I, I just think that's not true. Um, maybe it's a little bit like uh, Pastor Phil's son, Stanley, who's forcing himself to have a good time. Watch what happens. <laughs> Right? We're forcing ourselves to have a good time, even though we're like a moment away from a meltdown. That's what's happening. That's, and that's the trap with fun. When we try to force it, it feels like a denial, like we're just ignoring what's happening or, or hoping it will just all go away. And the reason why I think it's important to clarify that that's not what we're talking about this morning is because I know that people came in here this morning with all kinds of things all kinds of experiences and feelings. And maybe even some of us came in here this morning just a moment away from a meltdown. And so we're not going to fake it because um, when we do, we become like what N.T. Wright says, that we were made for joy and we settle for pleasure. We're made for joy and we settle for pleasure. So we choose fun that numbs us and helps us escape our pain. And we seek a moment of pleasure, which turns into a habit. And a moment turns into a habit, which turns into an addiction. Right. And what does that lead to? That leads to more pain for ourselves and more pain for those around us. So just to be clear, that is not what we're talking about this morning. No. Okay, and since we've spent enough time talking about it, let's, let's dig in. What are we talking about? What do we mean when we say in our house, in this house, we're about fun? Well, if we're going to be a church that Pastor Pat challenged us to be, which is about the work of reconciliation, the work of justice, and if we're going to be like Pastor Mike challenged us to be, a community that belongs fully to each other, we're going to need to create spaces where there is joy and celebration and laughter. Because here's what I know to be true, that the work of justice, the work of reconciliation, it's actually really hard work. It's really messy and difficult, as well as the work of community and belonging to each other. It can get really messy and really painful and really challenging. That's true. But you know what's also true? Is that the work of reconciliation, the work of justice can actually also be so exciting and rewarding and the work of community and belonging to each other, it can be beautiful, it can be hopeful, it can be good. But what happens is those things exist together. It can also be, it can be, both be disappointing and frustrating and hard and beautiful and exciting. It can be discouraging and beautiful all in the same exact moment. And there lies what we call tension the coexisting of both of these truths. 
Pastor Rick Warren, he says that most Christians don't struggle with the mountains and the valleys. What we struggle with is what we call the railroad tracks, the coexisting of these experiences, the tension that is created between them. Actually, the Apostle Paul kind of talks about this a lot too. He talks about it, and he, he goes into a lot of depth about this tension, and I just want to unpack a little bit of it. It's from 2 Corinthians, and you can follow along on the screen. This is what it says. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, yet we have everything. It's tension. They exist together. So if we're going to be a church that values reconciliation, redemption of all people, and if we're going to be a church that's about belonging to one another, and if we're going to do that and we recognize we need to create spaces of celebration, what we're going to have to do is get comfortable with tension. And part of, I think, first of all, getting comfortable with tension is changing our view how we see the word tension, right? I feel tense. I've got a tension headache. You know, variety of reasons those might come. One of them might be teenagers. I'm not totally certain. But all of those experiences around that word are what? Negative. They're negative. And so what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, is it possible that when we experience tension, we could in fact experience joy? Could those things go together? Now there's this hobby called slacklining. Now I've never done it, uh, mostly because I'm, I walk and fall, so doing something difficult um, would not be good for me. But again, people do this thing and it's where there's tension created between two posts or two trees and people do it for fun. Again, not me, but people do this for fun. Because what they've found is that tension can be enjoyed. It can be enjoyed. It's not natural to enjoy it. It's actually something you learn. It takes practice. Uh, here's a little bit of what practice might look like. always the person on the ground who's like, ooh, you know what will help? Running. <laughs> Try that one. <laughs> lots of practice and lots of failure, but what is realized is that tension can be a place where we experience joy. And Paul, who talks about this idea of heartache right, ne right next to joy, right, and having everything right next to nothing, he talks about this tension that he lives with. You know what Paul's also famous for talking about? joy and rejoicing. In his letters to the churches, it's used, he says the word joy or rejoicing over 50 times. So here's, here's a man who's in the middle of the tension and he's telling the Christ followers, in the middle of it, choose rejoicing. Amen. Choose joy. Amen. In fact, Philippians 4.4 4 says this, always be full of joy in the Lord. 
I say it again, rejoice. And to learn to embrace the tension, to find joy, we're going to have to be people who get comfortable with it, who find our home in the tension. So let's determine what the tension is. That's your first fill-in. The first fill-in is this. We live with a tension of already and not yet. So when we started this series, you'll remember that Pastor Pat talked about, he went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He went all the way back to the Genesis story. And he talked about this idea of human flourishing, of a place where there was shalom, where there was no shame, and he called it original goodness. Well, it didn't take long before original sin entered. And what happened and the consequences that came to the world and to creation because of original sin. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the passage in Genesis where it kind of unfolds what the consequences are to the original sin. And here's what I would encourage you to do. I think it might be helpful for you. As we're reading this passage, if you want to put a little star next to anything that sounds like a consequence. It sounds like the bad news of original sin. So let's read it together. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his hill. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pains of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life will be a struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground, for which you were made, for when you were made from dust, and to dust you will return." Now, this passage is called the curse. It's known as the curse. And, and while this is just the beginning, the genesis of humanity in our relationship with God, and if you walked through Scripture slowly, you would see that there are multiple times where God's longing for humankind's flourishing shows up over and over. Amen. And ultimately, the final act of God becoming man, entering the world as Jesus to, to perform what would be the final act of our restoration, of our rescue from the curse. And so we understand that on this cross where Jesus laid down his life, which is even foreshadowed in that curse passage. Do you see it where it says that the offspring will, will strike the head of the snake? That's a foreshadowing of Christ's coming. That on the cross and in the resurrection are the very moments where the curse is broken. So you might ask, as I do, why do we still feel the weight of the curse? Why do we still see the brokenness? Why do we still see those things that we start in our world? Well, Paul, he wants to explain that to the church in Rome too. He, he wants to help them understand. And so this is what he says in Romans 8. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us all our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. So notice, you'll see already and not yet in there a lot, right? We're, we're waiting for the day. Creation longs for what is to come to be released from the curse. The day where there will be no death and decay. Even though we have a foretaste, even though we're tasting a little bit of it, we're still longing to be released from sin and suffering. We're still waiting to experience the full benefits of being God's children. And how does he end this passage? He says, we have a hope because we were saved. And one of my favorite uh, biblical scholars, his name is N.T. Wright. This is what he says about this particular passage. He says, we enjoy it here and now, always partially, of course, since we all still have to die. Genuinely anticipating in the present what is to come in the future, we were saved, says Paul in Romans 8, 24, in hope. The verb, we were saved, indicates a past action, something that has already taken place, referring obviously to the complex of faith and baptism of which Paul has been speaking in the letter so far. But this remains in hope because we still look forward to the ultimate salvation of which he speaks. Paul is speaking both of the reality of already and not yet. He holds on to hope and is not afraid to talk about suffering. He longs for the day with the full benefits, but realizes we live with sin and suffering. He knows the work has already been done, but we have not yet experienced it fully. Because see, we still see broken relationships between men and women. That's part of the curse. And we still see a broken relationship between humankind and creation. That too is part of the curse. And we still see and experience death, which is part of the curse. That's the reality that you and I live in. But Paul wants us to understand it's a temporary reality. It's not how it's always going to be. In fact, Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica, he's telling the church, he's, listen, they're wondering about what happens to someone when they die. And so Paul's explaining death to them because it doesn't match up with what they understand of the, uh, the not yet, of the what's to come. And this is what he says in 1 Thessalonians. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. People die. Bad things happen. And we grieve because it's not what we hoped for. It's not what we prayed for. It's not what we longed for. And Paul's not saying, oh, just get over it. They're in heaven. No, Paul's saying, look, there's grief. We, we grieve and we, we experience loss. And that is real. But we are people who believe that because of the cross, because of the resurrection, it's not the end. That we have hope. We live for the hope of not yet because of what's already been done. So as Christ followers, we know that this moment is temporary. We believe this isn't the end. This is not the end for us. There will be a day when our relationships will be made right. 
And so we work towards that reality. And we believe there will be a day when there is peace between humankind and creation. And so we work towards that reality. And we believe there will be a day where there is no death. And we also hold on to the hope of resurrection. And that is the work God does. So we long and we wait for resurrection. So as Christ followers, we're not people who live in denial that bad things don't happen. We also don't live in denial that good things don't happen. We celebrate the already and the not yet, which leads us to our next villain. We live with the tension of lament and laughter. Lament and laughter. It's a great combo, Neely. Way to go on putting those two together. I'm sure it doesn't make sense right off, but let's unpack it. Let's see what that means. So we've all already acknowledged that life hurts, that it's impossible for, t- for us to avoid pain. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, his closest companions, he said, listen, the world is going to come at you with sorrows and trials, but don't be overcome. And those closest companions, you know what happened to most of them? Just as a good reminder for us, most of them were tortured, experienced extreme poverty, and were martyrs. So they became fully aware of what it meant to follow, to live in this world of sorrow and trials. They were not, they did not escape lament. They did not escape loss. So we shouldn't be surprised that the reality we live in is one where we experience pain. About 15 years ago, my dearest friends um, experienced a loss, one that is every parent's worst nightmare. Their young son died. And I had seen pain before, but not like this. The level and the depth of the lament and the grief to be so close, to experience it for myself, it was something I I can't even imagine. And there were no easy answers. But can I tell you what surprised me in the middle of their lament was the laughter. See, most nights after he died, we would sit around a table and we would talk about all our questions and our doubts and we would cry together. And we would take a little break to play a card game, as you do in the middle of lament. You know, you take a little break. And we would find ourselves laughing and experiencing a a respite. But we would find ourselves back at talking, back asking questions, back crying. And this this continued for weeks, and this, this idea of lament and laughter right next to each other. There's actually research, a lot of research, on the reality that laughter and joy are good for our bodies. That in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, that it can actually be a release for our brain, a release for our body to experience joy. It's, and you know what's, what's amazing is the Bible was saying that long before the research was. In Proverbs, it says, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. So maybe the one who made us, maybe the one who put us together and knew that this world we were going to live in was going to be messy, maybe they gave us a gift inside of us to make it through suffering, to survive suffering. 
So let's clarify though, this verse doesn't say a cheerful heart is a medicine that cures. No, it just says it's a good medicine, which likely means it just gives relief and respite from the suffering. So when we live in this already not yet, we, we find ourselves being comfortable with lament. We find ourselves being okay with grief and sitting in it and allowing others to sit in it. And then we're finding ourselves surprised that laughter is showing up, that joy is showing up, that relief is showing up even in the midst of it. And it's going to take time to learn how to do it. And it's going to take even more time for us to learn how to create spaces to do that here at Overlake. But we want to be a place that lives in that tension, lives in the middle of that. Because really, ultimately, we want our life to reflect the life of Jesus. Our life here at Overlake to reflect the life of Jesus. And you can find stories of Jesus weeping and Jesus comforting. In fact, one of the most uh, comforting, most powerful verses, I think, in the gospel is when Jesus is hanging out with his friends Mary and Martha, and they're weeping because their brother Lazarus has died. And it's the shortest and maybe most powerful verse in John. It says this, then Jesus wept. God in human flesh is at home in lament. Amen. And we are going to be a church that is a place and a safe place to be at home with lament. Brene Brown says this, I went back to church thinking that it would be like an epidural, like it would take the pain away. But church was not an epidural for me at all. It was like a midwife who just stood next to me saying, push, it's going to hurt a little bit. I thought Faith would say, I'll take away the pain and discomfort. But what it ended up saying is, I'll sit with you in it. And that's the kind of church we're going to be, people who are willing to sit in the middle of suffering and allow those around us who are in the midst of grief to grieve and lament. And we will also be the people who remind them, we don't grieve without hope. We have hope. In fact, next Sunday evening in the chapel at 6 p.m., we're going to offer a lament service. And the reason we offer this lament service is we realize in the middle of this season, there are people who are experiencing loss and suffering. And we want to create a space for them. And so I want to invite you to join us if that is something you need. But in pursuit of being house that reflects the life of Jesus, that means we're also going to need to have places of laughter and joy and celebration. Because Jesus attended weddings and meals and uh, he hung out in celebrations. He told stories of the kingdom of God as a feast or stories of a father who threw a big party. In fact, did you know Jesus was accused of having too much fun? I like that about Jesus. Always getting into trouble for something, you know? In fact, it says in Luke, he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I'm not advocating that we get too crazy, that we start getting accused of being gluttons and drunkards around here. But I am advocating for a church that shows up to celebrate life, to savor the moments we have. We are people who know God has already done the work, so we celebrate. And we are people who know that God is not yet finished, and he has promised, and he will complete the good work in you and me and in this world, and so we celebrate. 
We are like Paul. We choose joy and rejoicing in the midst of tension. In our house, we live with the tension of lament and laughter. We're at home with sorrow and joy. Now, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to proclaim this is who we are. But how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? I want to share a couple of practices that I have found bring joy in the midst of lament. Um, And maybe these are practices for you. Maybe you have others. But here are a few that, that I think help us navigate this tension. The first one is gather around a table, preferably to eat. I think good things happen around the table, especially when there's food. Something happens. It could be goldfish crackers. It, something is good happens there. Um, I prefer not, it's not goldfish crackers, but um, it's a good start, you know. In the Gospel of Luke, the table shows up a lot. Right. Jesus, Jesus hangs out at the table about 10 times we see him sharing a meal. And, and the scholars call it table fellowship. He's experiencing table fellowship. These are sacred moments. There's, it's a simple practice, but a sacred one. In fact, just a few weeks ago, um, I was, Josh and I were having dinner with four of other couples from Overlake who are the premarital counselors. And we were having dinner and we were sharing our stories about how we met our spouses and how our love began to blossom. And it's so great. It's like, it brings me so much joy to watch spouses tell their story and how they interject with each other and like over, like interrupt, no, that's not right. That's not how it went. You were stalking me. I was stalking you. You know, that kind of thing. Here's what I think I want to say. This is my totally unbiased opinion, but women are always right about the story. (laughs) It's just time to accept that truth, you know, but you hang out at the table. There's laughter. There's joy. And if you hang out long enough at the table, you also get to hear the stories of pain. You also get to experience and hear people's laments and losses. Even in the Gospel of Luke, one of the most important tables that Jesus sat at was the, the Last Supper, where he shared a meal with his disciples moments before he would be arrested and crucified. Even then, the table is sacred because it's a place where you can lament and laughter. Here's two questions I think you should ask yourself about your table. One, are you sitting back waiting to be invited to a table? Because maybe you need to set a table. I think sometimes we have this longing for community and belonging and a sacred place like a table, but we sit back and wait for others to include us. And maybe the invitation is for you to set the table. The second question I would have for you is, does everyone look the same around your table? Because I happen to believe to experience the depth and the fullness of the richness of God's kingdom and the already and the not yet, you need to have people that look different than you. You've got to. It's the only way to experience it the way God intended for us. So the second practice is this, is do hard things together, preferably with others. I think when we recognize that life is hard, we're prone to want to avoid doing hard things. We're like, it's already hard. Why do I need to add more difficult things to my life? 
And here's what I do know and what I believe is that when we step out and do hard things with other people, we create more opportunity for tension. And when we create more opportunity for tension, we create more opportunity for joy. I've worked with students and families for over 25 years now. And here's what I realize is that um, when I'm hanging out with students who have graduated and we're talking about their experience and, we're and I'm saying, what was your highlights about student ministries? For sure, camp is like always on the top of the list. But you know what surprises me that comes right after is they liked the hard things we did. The mission trips, the sleeping on hard floor, the going a week in Mexico without showers while we slept in tents. The sorting out food at the food bank between the moldy food and the good food. Because in those moments, we were, we were doing something together and we were finding joy. And it wasn't because it was easy. Uh, our young adult team just went to Israel and Palestine. And Sachin, who was leading us in worship, he was telling me a story about how they were going to go to this olive farm in Palestine called Tent of Nations. And they were going to go there, and they were like, oh, this is going to be so great. They're a peacemaking organization. And they were going to go, and they're like, oh, we'll pick olives. We'll pet, pet some animals. You know, we'll learn about peace. But instead, when they arrive, they show up at this, this place. They're, they're, they're led to a field full of rocks. And the owner says, I need you to move these rocks from this field to that field over there. And you just can't move them from pile to pile. You need to move them, and then you need to lay them out flat and make a nice surface. And then the owner leaves. And they spend all day, they're loading up wheelbarrows, they're chucking it up a hill, they're unloading it, they're like flattening, doing the best they can. They spend all day. And then they realize they have to come back the next day. So they come back the next day, and as they're in there, they're like, wait, did we do anything? Did this how did he move the rocks in the middle of the night back? Like, is this a prank on us? Are we having one of those moments? And so they, they realize they have to do it for two more days. So they begin moving the rocks. And Sachin says that like halfway through the second day, like something switched. And he's like, I don't know if it was because we were so tired and exhausted or if it was because we were in this together, but they started like making fun of each other, making fun of the situation, singing songs, making up songs, having competitions, competitions where like, who could pick up the largest rock? And Sachin wants me to let you know it was him. <laughs> and they would make a competition about who could feed up, fill the wheelbarrow up fastest. Again, Sachin wants me to let you know it was him, you know? They found a way to experience joy in the middle of doing something hard together. So as we head into the next year, I wonder, can you ask yourself, what are some places I might be willing to step into something hard, to invite the tension into my life that I might experience more joy, a fuller sense of what joy is? The third thing, third practice I think we can do is sing, preferably together. I think you can sing alone. I want to say that's a fine idea too, but to experience the joy of it, to experience the, the tension that comes in it, you need to do it together. Because worship through singing is a radical act of acceptance of the tension, right? We sing because we're celebrating what God has already done. But I also happen to believe that worship is an act of resistance. 
It's an act of resistance because we're saying we're going to sing because we refuse to lose hope that the God who said he will make all things new is doing that. And so we, we sing as an act of resistance. Along about 15 years ago, similar to when I was walking with my friends, I sat with an older mentor couple. And they were people I really respected, and they had lived a pretty hard life. And they had followed Jesus very faithfully, even in the middle of a lot of pain. And I remember asking them, how do you do that? How did you make it so long in your faith, even all that you experienced? And the woman kind of leaned in and she said, well, every morning, before I'd start my day, no matter what I was going to face, no matter what questions were in my mind, I would remind myself of two things. Two things I knew I could be rooted in. God is love and God is good. And actually, this has been a practice that I've held on to. That even in my moments of wondering, God, what are you up to? How is this going to unfold? How will you finish this? How will you complete this? How will we see your final work in this moment? When I don't understand it, I find myself repeating those things I know. I declare those things. God is love. God is good. Do you know what that is? That's worship. That's worship that I'm declaring who God is no matter my circumstances. Amen. And to be a home that's filled with joy and celebration, we need to be a place that declares God is good no matter what's happening. We need to be a place that sings together, that uses our voices to declare that we know that God is faithful, to declare what we know to be true. We need to sing as a great act of resistance and a great act of acceptance. We are people who welcome the tension. We live with the reality of already and not yet. We live with lament and laughter. And we sing through laughter and tears. And I'm not sure what you came in with this morning. I realize there are people here who are in the middle of lament. And I want to say this is a place for you. That you belong here. And there are people who are in the middle of a season of joy and celebration. And I want to say you belong here. This place is for you. And I want to invite you to celebrate with me, to sing with me, that no matter your circumstances, we will declare together that God is good and that God is love. So why don't you stand with me and let's pray and then let's sing together. Jesus, we do declare that you are good, that you are love, that you are finishing the work that you began in this world, that we don't have to be people afraid of what is to come. We can trust and we can celebrate that you are in control and what you have for us is good. So we sing and we celebrate. Amen. All right, let's sing together. You guys ready? Come on. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. Come on, let's sing this together. I raise a
done yet. <laughs> this is the power of worshiping together. This is the power of responding together. This is the power of encouraging each other that we get to lament, that we get to go through hard things, that we get to live in this tension because this is what we land on. This is what we respond to. This is what we come back to, that together as a church, as a family, as brothers and sisters, that we worship together, that we sing these truths, that we respond with worship, that we respond with singing, with dancing, with clapping. We are undignified in his presence. We're not gonna stop singing this. Come on, sing this a little louder. This is literally what we're doing. Sing a little louder, come on. Oh, we sing a little louder. In the presence of my enemies, we sing a little louder. Oh, louder than the unbelief. Oh, we sing a little louder. My about where we sing and we declare together the goodness of God. You can go ahead and take a seat and as you do, why don't you grab your handout and your connection card. And as we prepare to take offering, I do want to draw your attention to a couple things in the handout today. Um, and particularly, I would like you to look at the financial update. I'd love for you to take a little moment today at some point to really look at it. Um, here's the deal. I've been so excited these past few weeks. As we've reflected on who Overlake is, what we value, what kind of place we want to create. I get super excited. I get excited about where we're going and what is coming. And I also am so excited because I believe that Overlake um, wants to be a place that follows what God's calling us into. And this is where there lies another tension. If we're going to be a place that cares for every kid that comes through those doors, if we're going to be a place that cares for every teenager 
and their families. And if we're going to be a place that makes a lasting impact in our community, if we're going to be a church that makes an impact globally around the world, then we're going to have to do it together. We're going to have to be people who choose to give obediently and faithfully. People who call this place home, if this is your family, this is, this is how you step into our commitment and to our call. You do that by giving, by saying, yes, I'm on board. I'm committed to the things that Overlake's about, and we do that together. It's going to take all of us, all of us partnering and participating and saying yes to the call that God has given us. So that's what we're going to do. We're gonna, this act of worship of giving is about what we believe, about who we believe we want to be. So I'm going to have the ushers come now, and we're going to receive our author, offering and tithes, as well as those connection cards. You'll want to go ahead and drop those in there. I want you to know the elders and the leaders at Overlake, we're so excited about the days ahead. We are committed to a church family that is about family and about uh, freedom and about fun. And we're excited, and we're coming into a very exciting Christmas season. And so I also do want to draw your attention to some of those things. This Friday uh, is Kid Town Christmas, where we gather together. Everybody comes, and we decorate gingerbread houses. We'd love to have you. It's a great way to kick off the season. In student ministries, we're heading into winter camp season. And I, we love winter camp. It's a blast. We take sixth graders through eighth graders, middle schoolers, to Great Wolf Lodge. It's a blast. It's so fun. It's a little crazy, but it's the greatest. And then we take ninth through 12th grade high schoolers to Leavenworth. It's a fun weekend. But here's what happens is students encounter Jesus, and they build relationships and friendships that last for a long time. So if you're interested and want to know more information about that, you can go online. And again, I've already mentioned that this uh, next Sunday we have the lament service. And again, I'd encourage you, if you're in the middle of uh, lament, if there's loss, whether that's a job or a relationship or someone you love, I'd encourage you to join us for that night. And then, because it's December 1st, I'm going to talk about Christmas Eve. It's coming. Christmas Eve is coming. And I'm so excited. Here at Overlake, we offer a really special Christmas Eve service. Uh, we offer it three times, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 11. And I just have to say that Christmas Eve is probably one of my favorite services here. It's so fun, so great. It's designed for the whole family. And here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you to be thinking and praying, who could you invite to come with you this year? Who could you bring along to celebrate the birth of Jesus with us? Who, who could come with you? And finally, every Sunday, if you come in this place and you need someone to sit with you and to pray with you, I want you to know that there are people available. And so if you exit on the lower level, right by the Connection Center, you'll see people waiting to pray with you. Why don't you do this? Why don't you stand? Let me pray a blessing over you. Let's pray. May we go out into a world confident in our God who is making all things new in this world. May our hearts and our minds rest in the reality of our God who is both fully love and fully goodness. Even as we leave, may we be people fully committed to being a family that works towards reconciliation and belonging. And in a world so desperate of, for joy, May we be people who choose rejoicing. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.
surround